Amen. I heard a story on the radio this week, the wireless, for anybody who's uh, of my father's generation. And uh, it was actually a thought for the day, and uh, the person who was sharing the the thought on that particular day uh, was talking about a recent visit they'd had to Nigeria. And they themselves were born in Nigeria. And while they were in Nigeria, they heard story, so first-hand testimony, of people from Nigeria who had been living in South Africa. And apparently what's happening at the moment, um, I don't know how broadly, but at least in certain places in South Africa, is that people who are from Nigeria and living in South Africa are experiencing significant persecution. Some of them have been in South Africa for years, some even for longer than that, for decades, even generations. And yet they're being persecuted, and many, as over hundreds now, have been forced to leave and return uh, to Nigeria. And just hearing that story, I mean, first of all, it was obviously shocking to think that that is happening today. I'm sure not just in South Africa, but in other places as well. But it made me ask the question, begin to ask the question, how long do you have to live somewhere before you're counted as belonging? Like, what length of time has to elapse before you're actually part of a nation? You're considered, whatever you look like, to really belong, to be part of it. It raised the question in me of belonging. Now, belonging these days is big news. I heard uh, recently a, a term I'd never heard before in my life. It's one of those words, you hear the word and you think, that's not a word. It can't possibly be a word, but everybody's using it, so apparently it is a word. And the word, if you've heard it, raise your hand. The word is belongingness. You heard that word? No, it's just me who's heard that word. Well, apparently it's a thing. Belongingness, uh, you might say, is the quality of belonging. And belonging is big news. It's big news nationally. And look, I try, I do try, when writing these sermons every week, not to mention Brexit, And the political events happening around us at the moment, I do try very hard not to indicate taking any side, and I will never do that publicly, but I I try not to mention it, but it's really difficult when these events are happening around us because they have to do with belonging, don't they? They have to do with the question of where we belong. Do we belong here or do we belong there? In many ways, we've been asking this same question for many years. Years, even generations, I would say, we've been asking that, this question since the Reformation. Nationally, we're asking the question, where do we belong? But individually, we're always asking that question. Where is home? Where do I belong? Do I belong here? I guarantee you. This has happened this morning for those of you who are new here. You've joined in, and the question that's sort of bubbling under the surface is, could I belong in a place like this? And that's happening sort of... Uh, Sub-rationally, it's not necessarily something that's happening in your head, but it's happening. You're saying, do the people here look like me? Do they welcome me? Am I seeing any smiles or mainly grimaces? Do I like the cake? Is the coffee acceptable? Is it up to my usual standards? Or is it too posh? We're asking. We're always asking questions about belonging. Many of us in our culture and our society, they don't feel like we belong. Now, there are huge benefits to belongingness, he says, using that phrase as if he coined it. There's a quote on the screen I'm just going to read now from a psychologist I read this week. In short, people with greater perceived social support, so greater belongingness, greater sense of belonging, 
enjoy greater self-esteem, fewer illnesses, and longer lives. In fact, research in our own lab, says the psychologist, didn't know psychologists had labs, but there we go, they just had offices, has shown that people not only demonstrate better outcomes, e.g. less depression, less loneliness, greater self-esteem, greater happiness, from better quality relationships with people, but even the quality of interactions with one's dog, our men, can provide additional benefits above and beyond human social support. Note, the author does not say with one's cat. (sighs) Just to portray a personal prejudice of my own. Belonging. Belonging. Some of you have crossed this church off your church search, even now. <laughs> Belonging, where can we find it? I was, I was, I was born in Yorkshire. Hey, Ebagum. Yorkshire born, Yorkshire bred, strong in arm, thick in head. That's what we used to say. That's where I was born. I was born in Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, Pontefract General Hospital, if you want to know. I moved to Manchester when I was seven. That is why I am... A Manchester City fan. Where's Clive? Thank you. Uh, that's why I'm a Man City fan. I moved, got into football when I was seven, and uh, that's part of who I am. I felt like I was, I was born in Yorkshire, but what, I was asking the question even very early. Am I, am I a Yorkshireman? Am I a Lancastrian? Which one is it? I've, since leaving Manchester, I've lived in Cambridge, London, Costa Mesa, California, London again, and now for the last few years in Nottingham. And I have, I honestly do ask the question, where is home? Where is home? Where do I belong? The Christian faith has always claimed to have an answer to the question of belonging. All the language of being found, of coming home, of being saved, this is all language that has to do with belonging. It's all about belonging. Yet in our cultural discourse, in the the noise we hear on the street, so rarely, in fact, never at all, really, in my own experience, does the cultural discourse, does the sort of language on the street behave as if if the Christian faith, as if our intellectual and social uh, narrative, our history might have anything to do with these questions. People aren't... Maybe, or at least the media wouldn't suggest that people today are looking to the church for answers to these questions. But let me tell you today, the story we're about to see addresses these very questions. And what we see is that Jesus himself was, was inviting people to experience belonging. He had answers to these fundamental questions of belonging. And of course, Jesus addresses this teaching with a story. Jesus, the master storyteller, when he comes and shows up amongst people, he doesn't bring with him a textbook. He doesn't sit people down on the Lake of Galilee with the textbook of belonging. No, he tells stories. He captures people with stories because Jesus knows that stories do capture people. They get below people's uh, expectations, beneath people's reservations and uh, obstacles, and they grasp and capture the human heart. And in the last few weeks, we've been talking about some of these stories that Jesus was telling, were telling disciples and hearers of his at the time, and they're called parables. And we've said throughout this uh, series that parables were like ticking time bombs. That is to say, Jesus would tell the stories, 
And he'd sort of leave them there. And people would go away immediately thinking, oh, I've heard a lovely story. Isn't that wonderful? Tell that one to the kids this evening before I tuck them into bed. And then as they were walking away, an explosion would go off. And they'd realize that they, in fact, were in the story. And it would cause, the stories would cause them to think differently about everything. Now, the particular story we're talking about today is a famous story. And I have no evidence for the assertion I'm about to make, but I think it's one of the most famous stories ever told. It is, of course, the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal means reckless, and it's been depicted in Rembrandt's famous piece of art. We may uh, see that on the screen in a particular grainy (laughs) example of it. There we go. Some think Shakespeare was leaning on this story uh, when he wrote Henry IV, Uh, part one, and there are loads more popular examples too of how this story's been told and retold, whether directly or just thematically picked up. This is an impressive and uh, powerful story, and let's read the story and see what it has to teach us today. Chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel, verses one to three, beginning there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, so at the beginning of the story, a bit of context is that Jesus is, is leading a bit of a movement. And his movements become particularly pop- popular amongst people known as tax collectors and sinners. This story that Jesus tells doesn't come, as it were, out of nothing. This story comes in a context, and the context is that Jesus is proving particularly popular with people who weren't particularly popular. And because of that, people who had power and people who had an interest in keeping things the way that they'd always been, religious conservatives, begin to get a little bit frustrated, these Pharisees uh, and these teachers of the law, and they begin muttering, and they say things like this, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. In other words, they're asking the question, why is Jesus spending his time with people who everybody knows they don't belong? Why is he doing it? This man claims to be the Messiah. He he claims to be the king. He's not behaving like a king, is he? Our kings, they belong in palaces and on thrones, and they're supposed to show uh, their power by who they spend their time with. And this pretender, look at, look at him. He's got the wrong crowd, tax collectors and sinners. But on the other hand, we have the tax collectors and the sinners, and they're receiving Jesus in a completely different way. They're overcome with joy and happiness because they've been captured by the utter goodness of this man, the gentleness, the tenderness of this man. And so there they are flocking around him, gathering around to hear Jesus. What is it that they see? We hear and we see what they, the tax collectors and the sinners see, we hear it echoed in the language of the Pharisees. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They felt welcome. I hope you feel welcome today. Have you ever felt 
Have you ever been somewhere where you felt particularly welcome? You know, one of those customer service experiences. You get in the door and somebody's like chewing your face off. You're like, oh, whoa, 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 a bit too much. Maybe you felt particularly welcome. So maybe it's that you, you go home at Christmas and the door opens. You feel the warmth of the sort of glow welcoming you at the door. You smell the cooking. And, oh, I'm home. Or maybe, maybe you can think about it this way. Have you ever felt particularly unwelcome somewhere? Have you felt particularly unwelcome? Have you ever been someone you've just immediately sensed that I don't belong here? And if you felt that, as soon as you walk in the door, all you can think about is, how quickly can I escape this place? (laughs) Maybe some of you are thinking this right now. When is he going to stop talking so I can leave? (laughs) Being with Jesus was exactly the opposite of this. Nobody wanted to leave. And the further away you were from God, the more you felt this like attraction. You just felt drawn in. You felt like you just... Have you ever met somebody and it's just like you, you spend an hour with them and you're like, I've known this person all my life. I think Jesus was like that. I think people spent time with him with like, have I met you before? You seem so familiar to me. Familiar. You're just like Family. And so Jesus tells some stories to explain why it is that he'd be welcoming people. People like tax collectors and sinners. And, and in this culture, tax collector and sinner, it was just shorthand for people who everybody knew were outsiders. Well, why would he welcome them? Jesus, in answer to that very question, tells three stories. And the first story, we're not going to read them all, but the first story is the story of a lost sheep. And the moral of the story is that the shepherd loses a sheep and immediately goes to find it, even risking the safety of the others. Such is his love for that sheep. The second story is about a woman who loses a coin. And the point of that story is that God is a bit like this woman who loses a coin and stops at nothing until she finds it. And once she finds it, she celebrates it. She throws a party in honor for her friends for this coin. And thirdly, we see that God is a little bit like... Well, let's tell the story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So we divided his property between them. Okay, this has been said before. If you've been in the church, this is not news to you, but if you're new, this may be news. In this culture, for somebody, for a son who was due to inherit something from his father upon his father's death, for a son to say to a father, Father, before you've died, in anticipation of your death, even before your death, I would awfully like to take my money out of your pension pot, Dad. To do that today is bordering on disgraceful, isn't it? To do that in this culture would be seen as the most grievous offense, a culture in which it was literally law to honor your father and mother. To do this and to ask this was tantamount, it was equal to saying to your father, I cannot wait for your death, Dad. I wish you were indeed dead. It was the height of impropriety. It wasn't something anybody would consider doing. When Jesus tells this story, there would be gasps at just this moment. Now, this first son is the youngest son. 
What would happen is that there was an older son and a younger son, that the, the property would be divided into three. The younger son would get a third, and the elder son, who had most of the responsibility, would get two-thirds. But the younger son would still be seen as having significant responsibility. So to do this, even for this younger son, the irresponsible younger son, is still unacceptable. And so he takes the money. Now, why would he do this? We have to say that even at this point in the story, this son is lost. He's living at home, but he's not experiencing any of the benefits of home. For for him even to be saying this and even asking this of his father shows that any intimacy and connection with his father is completely gone, if he had it at all to start with. This son is lost. And what we see happening next is this son going into the distance, into the far country. Next slide, we see this. Going into the far country or distant countries, it says here in this version. What is he going to go and do? He is going on his gap year to find himself. Anybody done it? Yes. He's going to find himself. To forget who he is. And to find who he is. This is his opportunity to create a new identity for himself. You know, you move to another place and you can just sort of make it up. Right? You just make up a new backstory. And so this son goes to this new place and begins to do that without the constraints of dull things like tradition. And obligation. Off he marches and creates a new life for himself. And instead of tradition and obligation, he buries his head and his heart in pleasure. Now, events conspire to impoverish him. There's a downturn in the economy. And things aren't going quite so well as they were before. He loses all his money in loose living, wild living. (laughs) Jesus doesn't give us the full detail. And there's an economic crash. The bottom falls out of the labor market, and this man, his only option is to work in a pigsty. Now, the power and the force of this, again, is lost on us. So let me just attempt for a second to retell this story. A young man, son of wealthy parents, raids his parents' bank account. Parents, don't give your passwords to your kids. Leaves home and moves to Vegas breaking all ties with his parents. He spends a few months in the casinos and the clubs and eventually runs out of money. He goes looking for work, but he can't find any. It's not the season for it. But he sees an ad for a modeling contract online. He is a particularly good-looking young man. And despite his recent bad luck, he's still pretty sure of himself. He shows up to the interview only to find that he's interviewing for a role in an adult film. He's so desperate, he takes the job. It's the lowest he's ever felt. That's what's happening here. The son in the pigsty, experiencing the lowest of the low. The young man goes into the far country to get some distance from his dad. It's overbearing. Parent, maybe. And from his family, but he ends up distant from himself. In seeking pleasure, in seeking to find himself, actually he gets lost in the process. 
Many of us have experienced something like this journey at different points in our lives. I certainly have. And I, I know I've told you some of my story, and I, I don't even really want to do it this morning. It's just so cliche. It's so obvious. It's so well-trodden. But I lived, have lived, and I'm sure in some deep parts of my soul, I'm still living this story. This story of lostness, this story of belonging, I was a particularly pertinent example of it when I did leave home to go to university. And I felt the, the burden of religious performance all of my life. And it had become suffocating to me. And having a little bit of physical distance from my background enabled me a year into my time at university to just begin to see if I could carve a different path. And I did it in an extremely cliche way, exactly like this young man did in some wild living. And I will spare you the detail. <laughs> and in pursuit particularly of pleasure, anything honestly that would make me feel a bit better about myself than I was at that point, I felt so low at that point. And after pursuing that for a period of time, initially there were just huge benefits. I just felt those better. Oh, just get all that religious mumbo-jumbo out of the way and let's just start living. But I just, after a couple of years, I just was more lost than ever. I was so, I felt fractured. I felt dislocated, out of place. Whether or not you've had a story and an experience like that, you will know, living in today's world, what it's like to feel fractured and dislocated. Honestly, just the pace at which we run today, the pace at which we attempt to live human life and, and think we can stay healthy, leads, I think, many of us to feeling fractured, feeling dislocated. We're so busy, it's easy to lose our anchor. And for some of us, we find that we do hit rock bottom. This young man, hits a point of rock bottom. It says here, in the pigsty, he has a thought. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said. When he came to his senses. The original Greek, it says this, when he returned to himself. <laughs> it's like he woke up. It's like the light went on. This was his epiphany moment. It was his eureka moment. Oh, wow, that's what I've been missing. Ah, I'm, I'm working in this pigsty. I'm in this film. I could be a slave back home. My dad pays better wages than this lot. I'm off. He wakes up. He has a realization. He returns to himself, and he leaves the pigsty, and he wanders home with no great expectation but with his story sorted. He prepares to meet his father. He says, I'll say this, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got off and went off to his father. I just imagine him going, back, going home, working on his story, thinking, I think I've got that nailed. Word for word, I think he'll like that. But what we find is he doesn't really get a chance to tell the story. His father is out to meet him. His father runs out to meet him. His father hikes up his skirts 
in an act that would be shameful to his father. His father takes on shame, the shame that belonged to his son, in order to go and meet his son. Not waiting for his son to come home and give him the speech, but his father takes on the shame that belongs to his son so that his son might exchange his shame for his father's righteousness. And his father meets him and says, I don't want your speech. I just want you home. We see that his father does three things that would absolutely astound the son. These three things would astound the hearers that Jesus speaks to. The first thing he does is he welcomes his son. The son is welcomed home. While it was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He ran to his son. He threw his arms round him and kissed him. Look at this extravagant, extraordinary welcome that the father gives the son. The son is welcomed. That was not to be expected. Not just welcomed. The son is restored. Look at this. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son all in one breath. The father said to his servants, you know, he doesn't even address the son's speech. It's like he's already turned around. Where are my servants? I've got some orders to give. And what are the orders? Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This is restoration. The son is not being invited back into the household as a slave, but as a son. It's an extraordinary picture of the grace of the father. He's welcomed, he's restored, finally he's celebrated. Not just welcome to take the place of a son, but celebrated. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The point of the story is this. Jesus is saying, do you not see this is what I am doing? Look around you, he says to the Pharisees and the tax collectors. Can you not see the lost sons and daughters of Israel? Can you not see these sinners, these tax collectors, these people who you don't think belong? Can you not see that the Father wants them home? Can you not see that there's a feast waiting for them? The elder son can't see. Not immediately anyway. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field when he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. (laughs) Religious people don't like music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come. Everyone's gossiping about it. Your brother's come. He replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And you think what's coming is a, wow, Johnny's back. Oh, we could play back garden cricket again. (laughs) No. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. Who is the elder brother? The elder brother, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the ones who don't want the lost son home. The elder brother won't do and go into the party. He makes the father leave the party to come outside to speak to him, thereby 
shaming his father even worse than the lost son had. But the father, again, is willing to go out to speak to the second lost son. He's willing to go out to take upon himself the shame in order to bring the second son into the celebration. Because get this, the father wants everyone in celebration. He wants everyone in the party. There's not a person he isn't inviting to celebrate. The story's about two lost sons, not one. The lost son of rebellion. The son who attempts to, attempts to establish his sense of belonging by throwing off memory and tradition and pursuing pleasure outside of relationship with his father. The lost son of religion. The one who attempts to earn his sense of belonging through dutiful obedience, which never ever touches his heart, who is physically close to his father, but who never tastes the joy of intimacy and celebration, the lost son of rebellion, the lost son of religion, both being invited by the father into the father's house. We realize, don't we, at the end of the story that both sons were lost all along, and they both needed deeply what the father was able to give, but they wanted what the father could give them rather than the father himself. Jesus telling the story about how he reclaimed, come to reclaim the lost things and lost people. We began by talking about belonging. And I guess the question is this, to bring it home. Where do we belong? Where does any of us belong? Do I belong in Yorkshire? Am I a Yorkshire lad? Will they have me still? I'm working my way back up the country, by the way, folks. (laughs) Would they have me? Do I belong in Yorkshire? Am I a Lancashire laddie? You know, am I a Mank or a Yorkie? Where do I belong? Where do we belong? See, the Christian faith says this. We belong with God. We belong with the Father. And all we need to do is turn toward him. It's the son, he just begins, just begins to turn toward the father. And it's almost as if the father's like, Usain Bolt, <laughs> right? On the blocks, ready to meet the son. See, the prodigal doesn't just return to his house. He returns home. And returning home is about getting with the father. It's about knowing you belong with the Father. Yes, he's been a sinner, just like those who Jesus has eaten with. He's wandered far away, but he recognizes that there's a way to be good again. There's a way to come home. And he ends up in a (laughs) partay. And this partay is better than a Vegas partay. Oh, there might not be blackjack, but it's great to be back home with Abba. And you know, Jesus is saying to the religious people who are critiquing his ministry, you can come home too. You're standing outside the party at the moment. I leave you with this invitation. Will you come in? And Jesus knew how to tell a story. He doesn't even answer the question. Do they come in? We don't ever 
No. I want to end with a question to you. What do you think God is really like? Some see God as indifferent. Others as abusive, downright aggressive. But the God that Jesus tells stories about is one who goes after lost things and lost people and who will not rest until they're all home. And with great patience and huge compassion restores them and then celebrates their homecoming at significant personal cost. Are you ready to come and meet that father today? Why don't we stand? And I'm going to pray.